Hello, I'm Laura Hamilton. Welcome to Book Larder Podcast, where we share author talks from the kitchen of Seattle's Community Cookbook Shop. Summer is fully upon us here in Seattle, and we're quickly approaching the time when our markets and gardens seem to produce a glut of fruit and vegetables. That's the time when many of us turn to canning to help us deal with the overflow and to save that taste of summer for the darker, cloudier months. I will admit to having a bit of a love-hate relationship with canning. It can be a huge, messy investment of time and resources, and sometimes you just put up more than you can use. That's why I so appreciate the work of today's guest, Marisa McClellan. Through her blog, Food in Jars, and through her cookbooks, Marisa shares the tricks of small batch canning, so you can still save the season, but invest less time, and in my case, maybe make a little less mess. With her latest book, The Food in Jars Kitchen, Marisa shares some canning recipes, but also some ideas for using up all those lovely things in your everyday cooking. Marisa demonstrated her queso recipe in our kitchen in April 2019. Here's Marisa McClellan and The Food in Jars Kitchen. Thank you. Thanks, guys. Oh, it's it's really good to be here. Yeah, it's been fun that I've gotten to come here with every book, and it's hard to believe that this is book four, you know, whatever it is, seven years later since the first one, and, you know, I'm still doing this and still talking about canning, but I love it. Before I get too deep in, who are, who are my canners? Who cans? Nice. Awesome. Who has never canned before? That's okay, because you can still use this book, because it's great whether you've canned your own stuff, you've gotten things from a friend or a neighbor, you pick things up on a trip. You know, you, I, um, I still have a jar of marmalade from my trip to Ireland last year that I'm saving for something really great. And so this book will serve you whether you're a canner, you are the recipient of someone's canned goods, or you just happen to like to collect jam on your travels. The idea with a book is simply that it's open-ended. There are a lot of recipes that are very formula-based rather than you must have this and you must have this. As I was looking at books, thinking about writing this one, there were a lot of books out there that had the um, use-it-up recipes, but they said, okay, so make this preserve and then go ahead and make this exact dish. And I thought, that's not what people need. They need a book that will help them use up what they've got. And so the great thing that um, I tried to do with this book was instead of saying you got to you know, make a preserve to make a dish... I'll say, this recipe works really well with a stone fruit jam, so plum or apricot or peach, or this one works really well with a runny jam, you know, anything you've got. Or you just want a couple tablespoons of diced pickle here, and it can be a pickle or it can be a relish. The idea really behind it all is to help you use up what you have and make the best, most flavorful use of the condiments that are in your life as possible. So that's, that's what I'm really going with for this book, is to be open-ended, to be flexible. It made a real recipe chest- testing challenge simply because... You know, if you're telling people they can use what they've got, you know, it makes for kind of wide open testing ground. So I had a team of 10 volunteer recipe testers who made everything along with me. And we tweaked recipes. We made sure that they worked in various home kitchens. And so hopefully they will all work in yours. As I've been um, on this tour and making recipes in other people's kitchens, or I taught a class this morning at the pantry, it's interesting to see how it might not turn out exactly how it does for me at home, but it still works and it's still good. And so it's always a nice um, reminder that they work and it's delicious food. So I'm going to get started with our first demo recipe. So the idea tonight is I'm going to show you how to make just a quick batch of cooked salsa, and then I'm going to take some of it and transform it into a from-scratch queso. And the from-scratch queso is in the book, and it's simply a um, 
kind of drizzleable creamy cheese sauce that you can serve with tortilla chips. You can put in a little mini slow cooker and put out at a party. You can make sheet pan nachos with it. You could also take the same basic recipe and try it in different ways. You could make sort of an Italian flavored um, cheese sauce where instead of using salsa, you could use some Parmesan cheese and perhaps like you, you could find another cheese that would work well with it and then um, add some pesto and make sort of a pesto-y Italian cheese sauce. There's a lot of flexibility and um, versatility. So I've just got tomatoes, onions, red bell peppers, um, jalapeno, cilantro, garlic, lime juice, apple cider vinegar, and salt. It's a fairly basic cooked recipe. This is one that would be safe for canning because of the additional vinegar and lime juice, but it makes only two pint jars, so you wouldn't have to necessarily can it as well. This is just a scaled down version of the tomato salsa that's in my first book, Food in Jars. So if you have that book, it's essentially divided by third is what, that res- what this recipe is. So I'm just going to get going with that, get our tomatoes in, and I'll get the heat on as well. Mmm, it smells good up here. So I'm just dump. This is a basically a, a dump and stir kind of salsa. And we'll just bring it to a boil, cook it down a little bit, and then it'll be ready to go into the queso. So the queso recipe that I'm going to make for you, it's my from scratch queso, and it is totally and completely inspired by um, my childhood. I grew up in Portland, and um, my dad had um, season tickets to the Portland State Vikings games, and I was not a sports fan, but I would go with him for the food. And so I would go to these games with him on a Saturday afternoon and sit patiently. I'd bring a book and... Then it would be about, you know, when can I go get some of that terrible nacho cheese sauce that you get at a sporting event where it's like, you know, that lurid orange cheese, plastic cheese sauce and slightly stale, warm tortilla chips. But, you know, as a 12-year-old, I thought that was the best thing ever. As I got older, I really still had a taste for that kind of cheese sauce, but perhaps thought maybe I could make it a little less plasticky. And this is the result. When I was working on this book, I was trying to think, you know, I didn't want to just have sweet things. The expectation for a book that was all about using up your preserves is that it would be sweet, right? You know, like everything is going to be sweet. And so the goal was really to find ways to balance that and have as much savory as I had sweet. With this queso, it only uses a couple tablespoons of salsa. And you don't have to make your own. You can use store-bought salsa if you have a brand that you really like and you know buy a lot. But you do want to use one that's cooked rather than a fresh like pico de gallo because the consistency, like there's too much juice in the, the pico de gallo, the fresh salsas. And so it can break the cheese sauce. So you want something that's like a chunky cooked salsa that you can then scoop up the solids and introduce that into the cheese sauce. And that will give it its kind of a little bit of spice and tomato flavor, but without breaking the finished sauce. So yeah, and one of the fun things about this book is that I don't just have to demonstrate jam recipes or pickle recipes. It's been a real eye-opener to get to do other things because on the other three book tours I've always done, uh, recipes where I'm just making jam or making pickles. And so I am making salsa, but it's kind of fun to get to do more things. The class I taught this morning at the pantry, we made um, we made a jammy vinaigrette, and we made pickled red onions, and we made a big salad. We made pizza with marmalade and feta cheese and kalamata olives and red onions. That recipe's in the book. We also made a recipe that's not in the book, but it was in my pre-order bonus. And I'm so I'm going to tell you about the pre-order bonus thing. We did an additional six recipe um, downloadable ebook if you pre-ordered the book. But if you guys email me, I will send you the link so you can download it too. But they're pickle and onion fritters, which are so good. They go really well with the relish aioli that is in the book. So it's been really fun to demonstrate and teach these recipes that aren't just about preserving, but how to use up the preserves that you've made. So it's, it's really a kick. 
So we're just gonna let this simmer for a couple minutes. I don't wanna start the cheese sauce, the queso, until this is cooked down. But does anybody have any questions for me at this point? I can do a few, and then we'll kind of dive back into the demo. Yeah, back there, yeah. So you mentioned, you said you wouldn't have to preserve, you know, preserve it. Yeah. Pop out or whatever. Yeah. Is it because of the acid? This recipe is, um, the acid is balanced where you could preserve it if you wanted to. Um, but it's simply going to make this, this incarnation of this recipe makes a relatively small batch. It's really just a small batch one, which is great for those times when you maybe have a couple of pounds of tomatoes that you got at the farmer's market, or you've got a few that are coming out of the backyard, but you don't have a ton and you just want to do something with them before they go bad. And that's actually what my whole, my second book was all about. My, my second book, Preserving by the Pint, was all those micro batch canning projects where you start with a, either a pint, a pound, or a couple of, a pint, a quart, or a couple of pounds of produce and you can make little things that are all safe for canning. And so you fight off food waste, you make the best use of your farmer's market haul or your CSA share or your backyard garden produce and it allows you to put up little batches and be done quickly, which is always nice. All right, so our tomatoes are boiling away. I think what I'm gonna do is turn this off, get our cheese sauce started and let it finish cooking down and then we'll get ready to go. I'm gonna heat up this pot. Any other questions at this point? Some of my favorites, I love um, a lot of the family recipes that I've gotten to include in this book because I don't come from a family of canners other than my mom. So my previous books have not been as sort of family oriented. Whereas this book, I really got to pull in a lot of my relatives and extended family. So for instance, there is a recipe for a quick strudel that um, was my great aunt Doris's like go-to recipe. She was known for this thing and it's a dough made for, I mean, it's a really ridiculously rich dough. It's butter and it's sour cream and all-purpose flour and it makes this really soft, super tender dough that you then chill out for a little while. And um, once it's chilled, you roll it in flour and you roll it out really thin and it rolls out beautifully. So I'm just melting butter and adding a little flour to start our cheese sauce. And then you can fill it with whatever you like. But so my Aunt Doris, I call, we all called her the appetizer hobbyist. Like truly her favorite thing to do in life was to make appetizers and hors d'oeuvres and freeze them in case she was invited to a party. Or, you know, in case she needed to bring something to her synagogue for, you know, uh, a coffee hour or something, she always wanted to be prepared. So she would make this strudel and freeze it. And every weekend would make like a different variation and she'd always have strudel in her freezer. And when she died, there was so much strudel in her freezer that they served it at her memorial service. So I love that recipe and I love the association. It was funny, um, Friday night, I was, I was out here, but my family had their annual Seder. My husband, who is not Jewish, went, even though he's like, I really have to go to the Seder, even though you're not coming. I'm like, yes, you have to go to the Seder, even though I'm not coming. One of my cousins, who's 11, have, had to do a family history project. And it was so fun because he sent me pictures of my aunt pulling out this new cookbook to show my cousin, my 11-year-old cousin, the recipe because he needed to include a family recipe in his family history project. And I, it was like, oh my God, it's be already become this family touchstone. So that's been really one of the best parts of this book for me has that kind of that, that continuity and that connection. And so it's really, it's been really rewarding in that way and I love it. 
Yeah, I think I love that recipe. There's a crab cake recipe in the book that is something I, I adore. And it, I started making them um, two summers ago. My mom turned 70 two summers ago. And even though I live in Philadelphia and my sister lives in Austin, Texas, my parents still live in Portland, we managed to get all of our calendars together to um, all meet up at the coast, at the Oregon coast, for like four days. When I was growing up, we always went crabbing. My parents would rent a little house and we'd go crabbing um, on the coast. And it was magical simply because no one else wanted to go except my dad, my sister, and me. And so it was just the three of us. And it was like a throwback to being a kid. I hadn't done something with just my dad and my sister in two decades. And so suddenly, you know, it's like my sister has two kids, we're both married, and suddenly it was like being back in childhood, crabbing on a bay with my dad. And we came home, and the first night we had a crab feast, and the second night I made these crab cakes. And so now I make them, and every time it's like being back in that experience, in that weekend. And so it's like time travel and family travel through food And that's been sort of the best part of this book is getting to have those experiences and getting to share that. I love that part of it. But I love everything that's in this book. Really, everything is great. But yeah, but those are some of my favorites. Yeah. You mentioned that your aunt froze the... The strudel, yeah. So do you give instructions in the book on how to freeze it? Yes, I do. I mean, (laughs) essentially, though, all you do is once it's baked and cooled, you wrap it really well, a couple layers of plastic, put it in a Ziploc bag, and you freeze it whole. And then you can slice it frozen, you know, or like half defrosted so that it doesn't crumble. And then you just kind of let it come up to room temperature and you serve it. And that's it. And it's really, really great. All right. So our cheese sauce is done. It's still kind of thickening up. There's our cheese sauce. And I'm just going to spoon. We want about two tablespoons of salsa. So that looks, I'm going to call that two tablespoons. And I just drained some of the liquid off so that it doesn't split the cheese sauce. And then you just stir it in and it ends up looking a lot like the stuff you get at the ballpark or the (laughs) stadium, only it's just, you know, butter and flour and milk and cheese and homemade salsa. So that's it. It's really a simple one and it's easy to kind of stir up on um, the spur of the moment. You can, again, you could even just like pour it over toast if you're looking for a vehicle. It's not bad that way, let me tell you. I've made a lot of it. it. It's pretty darn delicious. So that's that's my demo for you guys tonight. So, more questions? Yeah. I just kind of wonder, like, how much jam or how many desserts do you make? Are you a hoarder? Like, Yes, or? yes, I am. I am a hoarder. I am a jam hoarder. Yes. Um, so I live in a an apartment on the 20th floor of a high-rise in Philadelphia, and I have a 1,000 square feet. I don't have a basement. I don't have any extra storage space. So everything that is stored in my life has to be in my 1,000 square feet, and still I am a jam hoarder. I have jars on sheet pans under my couch, and so they they slide out, and there's the jam. I have um, my tomato products are in my front coat closet along with the pressure canned beans and chicken stock. The pickles are in the hall closet, along with all the extra empty jars. I have a tower six boxes high of half pints of jam in the corner of my bedroom. Where else do I have jam? Oh, I have a, like a cabinet in my living room that has the applesauce and pear sauce and like pie filling. Yeah, it's insane. And I'm also um, 22 weeks pregnant 
with twins at the moment and we're gonna try to stay in our apartment. I have gotten rid of so many jars and I've emptied so many jars in the last couple of months and there's still so many jars. It's kind of a problem. I'll figure it out. Um, as far as like how long I keep things, because I develop recipes, I often keep things longer than might be advised simply because I wanna see how things age or you know, like I did something with natural sweeteners and I wanna see, well, what is this, what is this shelf life versus one uh, the similar recipe sweetened with sugar. And so I keep things longer than is typically the recommended time simply because out of my own sort of scientific curiosity about how these preserves are gonna last, I wanna watch them. Earlier this year, I was like, okay, I'm not keeping anything that is older than 2016. Because, you know, sometimes I just hold on to things to see, like, what does it look like? What's the texture change? And uh, it's been kind of wrenching because I'm like, oh, I remember the day I made that. I'm like, oh, you got to go. It's time for you to go. It's time for you to move on. <laughs> Often we talk about, like, shelf life of preserves. And, you know, the USDA says for best quality, you want to use your home preserved foods within a year. But, you know, the old-time canners that I talk to, it's typically more of a two- to three-year rolling cycle. And I, in my own experience, I find that, you know, obviously sugar is a really powerful preservative. So the more sugar that's in something, the longer it's going to keep well on the shelf. Because what the sugar does is it absorbs the water, it reduces water activity, and means that a preserve will last a lot longer. Because if there's no water active, there's nothing available for microorganism growth to happen. And so you just get a much longer shelf life. It also preserves color a lot better. So I have really seen that in my own experience where take a chutney that was sweetened with sugar and then another one that was just sweetened with dates. Um, nine months later, the one that was sweetened with dates is looking pretty sad. It still tastes good, but doesn't look great. Whereas the one sweetened with sugar, you know, three years, four years on, it's still going to be looking just as good as the date went into the jar. But mostly I find for people, you know, if you hold on to something after that third year, it's often because you didn't like it and you were just, you're just waiting for it to get old enough that you feel okay throwing it away. Um, <laughs> So, you know, we all have to figure out where we fall in that spectrum. I felt like 2016 was a good cutoff for me at this point because, you know, I haven't written a, like a dedicated canning book in a while. And so um, I don't need to be testing the shelf life and age of everything I make. But yeah. Can you add more cases of two tablespoons if you want to? You can. The, the issue then becomes after a while, it might start to break the sauce. And so it'll get a little bit grainy, perhaps, or it won't hold together. So if you add a lot more, it just kind of starts to separate. Okay. Can you give a little general canning advice on getting jars to seal? And it's also gotten harder in the last couple of years. The Ball people, um, and they make most of what we get. So Ball, you know, Ball owns Kerr and Golden Harvest. And if you get ever up in Canada and you're canning, they also own Bernardin. So even though they're these different jar names, they're all made and owned and manufactured by the same company. Um, and what they did a couple summers ago is they thickened the lid by a few microns, which doesn't sound like it should be that challenging or change anything. But it actually, what it does is when they thicken the, that lid slightly, it now requires more a more pressure differential to cause a seal to form. And so um, it is a little harder now than it used to be. So it's not, you're not doing anything wrong necessarily, but the things you can do to increase your success of sealing, it used to be that we would warm those lids. And then a couple years ago, um, they changed the recommendations and said you don't have to warm the lids anymore. I actually find that you get a better seal if you just one minute in warm water. You know, because the reason they told you not to warm the lids is that um, they thinned out the amount of sealing compound that they put on the underside of the lid. And so if you left it in water too long, that sealing compound started to melt off the lid. 
And so the solution was to say, well, don't warm your lids anymore. But I find that if you just give them like 60 seconds, even what I'll do is once I take the jars out of the canning pot, I'll drop the lids in for just a minute just to get them warm. I fill up the jars. You know, you wipe your rims carefully. You leave the amount of headspace required because headspace plays a huge role in whether the jar will seal or not. Because what happens when you put that jar in the canning pot is that the air you trap in that headspace, the heat of the canning pot starts to act on that air and it forces, to ex forces it to expand and vent out of the jar. So during the time that the jar is in the canning pot, the heat of the water is acting on that air, forcing it to vent out. So the canning pot is really doing two things. It's sterilizing with the heat, but then it's also causing this venting action to occur. And if you've ever noticed little bubbles escaping from the tops of your lids as the jars are processing, it's, it's working, it's happening. So you want to have enough, the enough headspace, not too much, not too little, some. Then you want to run the canning process for as long as it requires. You know, you get it to a full rolling boil. You don't start your timer until that point. And then the other thing that really helps is when the time is up, Instead of just immediately taking the jars out of the canning pot, you take the lid off, you turn the heat off. If you have an electric stove that stays hot, you can even slide, carefully slide your pot off the hot burner and let the jars cool a little bit more gradually in that hot water. And what this does is it just allows that little bit of um, additional heat. It slows down the um, chances of siphoning, so you won't, you won't have a leakage from the jar, which sometimes happens, and that can screw up your seal. But it also gives it a little bit more heat exposure so you're, you're getting that last bit of air out. And then after about 10 minutes of gentle cooling in the canning pot, you take the jars out. And then, this is the thing nobody tells you, if it doesn't seal after about 10 or 15 minutes out of the canning pot, you can employ an old school trick, which is you can invert the jar. And that can sometimes coax a reluctant jar to seal if it wasn't going to otherwise. And you only invert the jar if you have done a proper boiling water bath canning process, but it can give you a seal when nothing else will. And that's, um, if you're a master food preserver, you're probably shaking your head at me, but it does help. And if it's the, the difference between, is anybody a master food preserver in here? Okay, I'm safe. Um, <laughs> they, uh, they might yell at me if I told you that, but it really does help and it'll coax that last jar. And if you're at the end of your canning day and you just need that jar to seal, that inversion will often get it there when nothing else will. Half an hour. If it doesn't seal after half an hour, it's not going to seal. You're not going to leave it overnight. You're not going to do that. But half an hour, flip it upside down. Basically, it eases that last bit of air out if there's any trapped, and it just helps create that vacuum. Yeah? This is slightly off topic. Go bring it. Can you can an Instant Pot, and have you tried it before? Okay. <laughs> so Instant Pot has released an Instant Pot that they say you can can in. And they sent me one, and I tried it. Now here's the, here's the rub. Pressure canning times are devised not only to include the amount of time a jar spends in the pressure canner, but the amount of time the pot takes to come up to pressure. And so it's fairly standard on a stovetop pressure canner. And it's a different amount of time in the Instant Pot than it is on the stovetop. So here's what I know that's happening right now. Instant Pot is going through a series of tests at McGill University in Canada, trying to get their Instant Pot, the Instant Pot Max, I think, trying to get it certified that it is safe for canning. They've been through like two of the three stages. They haven't released the results for stage two. And so it may be that in the next year or so, we will learn that the National Center for Home Food Preservation 
will accept those results from McGill University, thus making it safe to can in an Instant Pot. But right now, if you can in an Instant Pot, you are a canning rebel. Um, and so I did try, I did run a test batch in my Instant Pot and I canned tomatoes. So I canned something that was already acidified. So the worst thing that was gonna happen is that they would spoil, they wouldn't cause any botulism issue. I gotta say it was amazing to be able to just put your jars in the pot, program it to a certain you know, amount of time and let it do its thing without having to monitor it at all. The downside is the Instant Pot Max holds four pint jars. You know, at what point when you're doing a pressure canning project, you only wanna can four pint jars. I mean, maybe if you have like leftover stock that you've made, like that's a useful tool. But if they made it hold four quart jars, then I'd be really interested. So we have a ways to go in the Instant Pot canning world. It may happen. Personally, what I would prefer is that like Ball would devise an electric countertop pressure canner. But Ball has been bought by Rubbermaid and they, are, they think of it more as a container company now than a canning company. So you may notice that there's a lot less recipes and information coming out of Ball than there used to be, and that is why. It's because Rubbermaid bought their parent company, Jarden Home Brands, a couple years ago. So it's a really different ball game. So now we're kind of at the mercy of places like Instant Pot to create a tested, proven electric countertop pressure canner. Did you think I was gonna know that much about that? <laughs> you're welcome. Yeah. Like, if you're developing recipes, how do you, like, test recipes? It kind of falls into two camps when I'm developing recipes. Often when I'm developing recipes, they're falling into sort of traditional ratios. You know, most of the fruit we use for jams and preserves on the sweet side of things, you can know what the starting pH generally of that particular fruit is. And if it's below 4.6 in pH, then you know it's going to be safe to do, you know, a lot of different things. Like you can add different spices, different herbs to change up the flavor, but still kind of work within that traditional format. So when I'm doing something like developing a new jam recipe, I'm not going to test pH because if, as long as I'm working with fruit that I know to be in sort of the safe zone. When I'm developing recipes that are a little, you know, riskier, I will sometimes test pH. Um, it's a little tricky to test pH though because it's not just a matter of dipping like litmus paper into a product. You have to preserve it and let it sit for a while. And then you puree one of the jars and you use a pH meter to take a reading of that puree because reading the liquid isn't enough. You need the total environment to figure out whether it's gonna be safe for canning. And so um, I've done that some Often because that, because I'm just one person in my kitchen, if I come across a recipe that I can't get to a place where I feel comfortable in terms of its pH or it's not giving me consistent readings, then that is either something I won't publish, I'll recommend for the freezer, or I'll say this is a refrigerator product. And so depending on kind of what it is and how committed I, have, I am to having it in a particular book or doing a blog post about it. But a lot of times my answer to, well, is this safe is, I just throw a lot more acid at it, you know, so like either citric acid or bottled lemon juice or bottled lime juice, knowing that as long as I'm following ratios of low acid ingredient to high acid ingredient to acid, that if it's following along tested recipes from other sources, that that's going to give me a certain level of safety. Yes, back there. Have you thought about what preserving you might do to feed your future kiddos? 
you are not the first person to mention that. A lot of people have been like, as you know, saying to me, baby food in jars. So yeah, I'm not, I'm not exactly sure where, where the future will hold, but I certainly am like, I'm going to make applesauce and I'm going to make pear sauce and I'm going to do those sorts of things. Um, I do, I like, I mentally am already thinking about what a food preservation book designed for kids, like for, you know, I, I don't think it would be for new parents. I think it would be like for grandparents and aunts and uncles, like the, you know, a book for people who wanted to preserve food for kids, for like their relatives, because from what I hear, there's no time. Um, but, um, I, but I am thinking along those lines. So we'll see. Yeah, I mean, I think my next project after this book, I really want to do a preserving journal, like a journal where you could fill in like your favorite recipes, keep an inventory of what you've made, record things that people like, you know, your aunt really likes this particular preserve, so you want to make sure you make that for her each year. The things that you've used up, the things you wished you made last year, kind of give people um, a preserving theme journal to kind of track their progress throughout the year because there's nothing quite like it out there. And, you know, it'd be nice to have something that was dedicated to a preserving practice. Marissa, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you, guys. Thank you to Marisa McClellan for visiting us in Seattle. As always, you can get 10% off a copy of The Food in Jars Kitchen and any other books featured on the Booklarder podcast by visiting booklarder.com and entering the code PODCAST at checkout. This episode was produced and edited by Abby Circatella. Our theme music was composed by James Coley. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, where our handle is at BookLarder. For more information about BookLarder, including author talks, cooking classes, and to join our monthly email newsletter, visit BookLarder.com. And if you find yourself in Seattle, please visit us at 4252 Fremont Avenue North. I'm Laura Hamilton. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.